1 Corinthians chapter 9 is where I want to be. Um, if you're physically able, I'd encourage you, if you would, to stand as we read the Word of God together. We're going to pick up reading in verse 16 and go through verse 23. This is what the Word says. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no, that, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. So this passage is one of those passages that, frankly, it sits a little uncomfortable into the modern ear. So the modern ear hears everything through a sense of personal autonomy. What is best for me? And it sounds like what Paul is saying here is that you should have no autonomy, that you give up everything, that you become a chameleon and do whatever is, is like the people that you're around. And, and I want to I press this passage into us today. And first of all, I don't think that's what he's saying, but I do think he's elevating something greater than our personal autonomy. Now, some of you who've been married a while, I want you to think back to the early days of marriage. And for those of you who aren't married yet, then listen carefully. For many couples, the very first year, maybe second year of marriage, is one of the more difficult years of marriage. And it's difficult in part because you are trying to merge two independent people into a singular union. And for those early days of marriage, they can feel like for each spouse that they are losing their identity. They're losing their autonomy because it feels like there are so many things that, of a question that, that maybe one, that the husband wanted that he didn't get. The wife feels the same way. There's something about she wanted that she didn't get. And both sides, there's this sense of losing the identity that they had before marriage. Now, what is humorous and heartbreaking all at the same time is often the flashpoints over this are not big significant things. Oftentimes the flashpoints where this conflict is demonstrated is over what seems like silly and insignificant things. Here's just a few that I've identified over the years. Are you or are you not someone who believes that the ketchup ought to be stored in the refrigerator or the pantry. 
Let me see my pantry people out there. You're my people, by the way. Praise God. I won that one in our marriage. Didn't win any of the others, but I won that one. Or, or it might be um, the type of laundry detergent that you wash your clothes in. The, the husband's mama washes clothes and tie. The, the, the bride comes into the marriage as a, a game person, and now his clothes don't smell right, and he's upset about it. The soap you use. I grew up with gold dial soap. It's the only soap that you ought to be using. Haven't used it since I got married, and I'm really a little upset about it still. Toothpaste. What toothpaste? If you don't, you don't use the right toothpaste, it doesn't taste right. Your mouth is not as clean as it ought to be. And the list goes on and on and on. How do you spend, where you spend the holidays? Do you go to his house, to her house? Do you split? Do you travel? Do you not travel? And oftentimes, those are the, those are the questions. Toothpaste and ketchup and soap and laundry detergent. Those are the things where the, 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 the blow-up happens, where the, the conflict happens. Now, if you're looking in from the outside and you don't understand this, you might go, well, that's ridiculous. Who really cares what kind of laundry detergent do you use? Does it really matter what kind of soap or toothpaste you use? And the reality of it is that the argument's really not about that. The argument is about that personal sense of autonomy being lost, and each side feels like they're losing everything, and so they pick one thing to fight over, and they're not willing to let loose over it. Hopefully, in marriage, you get over that, and by year five, year 10, year 20, you've settled into the, uh, a new identity as a couple. But this sense of personal autonomy has always been important down through the ages. It has certainly gained a unique importance in our present situation. Presently, personal autonomy, that means the individual determining their own life, has been elevated to a, to a place of importance that I don't think has been seen necessarily uh, in, in previous generations. In fact, it's prioritized over almost everything else. And today, as a result today, whatever an individual declares to be true about themselves is supposed to be accepted regardless of whether or not it is actually true of themselves because it is in their personal autonomy to declare what is true for them. Now, we could certainly find a lot in our current culture, cultural context that would testify to the dysfunction and delusion of personal autonomy over truth. But I want to make the case that all of us have a natural inclination to our own preferences and our own desires and our autonomy over others. One of the things you see that happening in, in, in the context of church people is we have elevated our personal autonomy over how we spend our time, how we spend our money, even how we give, where we give our attention to over something else telling us how to do those things. Thus, in that context, Paul teaches that this, in this passage that that there is something that we submit our autonomy to. And I think it was radical for Paul's day, and I think it's radical for our day. In fact, I think any time you say that you ought to submit your personal autonomy to something else, that is a radical message indeed. But here's the point this morning. The gospel is worthy of submitting your personal autonomy for. 
And so I want to walk through this passage. Let Paul be our teacher this morning as he explains to us what he's giving up and why he's giving it up for the sake of the gospel. And and, I, and here, here's the point. The gospel compels us to sacrifice many things, but the very first things that the gospel calls us to sacrifice is our lives. And here's how I want to define, uh, uh, divide our time. Two, just two points this morning. The gospel calls you to sacrifice yourself. The very first gift you give to God is your own self. That's where it begins. And then secondly, sacrifice for the law. So the reason, the motivation behind why we give ourselves is the gospel and the salvation of the lost. But let's begin with the sacrifice of ourselves. And there's a couple of things here that, that Paul says that he has given up. And, and, and we start with them in verse 20. So he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And in verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, and those would be those who are not Jews. He says, to those outside of the law, I became as one outside the law, uh, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. So there's a couple of things that Paul says here when he talks about what he has given up. And, and the first thing, when he talks about sacrificing himself, in verse 20, he says, I've given up my liberty. I've given up my freedom. I've given, out what I, given up what I can do that I might win some for the sake of the Lord. Now, now, Paul made much of his Jewish heritage and his Pharisaical history. So if you don't know the story of Paul, he grew up as a Jew. He is a Jew. And, and, and for um, the, the, uh, the, the, his formative days and his early days of his career, he was advancing in the Pharisaical world. In fact, in his early days, before his name was Paul, he was known as Saul. And Saul was making a name for himself, persecuting Christians. And he wasn't doing that out of a of what he thought was evil, he was persecuting Christians out of a, a motivated out of pursuing a Pharisaical law-keeping religious effort. And he had given his life to that. In fact, I think part of the reason why Paul was used so much by God as a, as a theologian in the early days of the church is because he had spent so much of his early days studying in the Word of God. God used that to give light to the gospel over that, and all of that together made him a great theologian for the sake of the gospel. He never backed down from that. In fact, he talks about in the New Testament how his pedigree, his resume is pretty impressive. He's kept the law. He's done the right things. He's pursued after the Lord in so many ways. But he also makes much of the grace of God that set him free from the demands of the law. In Romans chapter 5, he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abound all, abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In chapter 7 of this book, uh, uh, the letter to the first Corinthians, uh, he made clear that there was liberty and grace. He says, but, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the, the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat it. But here, he says, in verse 19, that he's not a slave to all, but that he is a slave to all. And he says, when I'm around Jews, I become as one under the law that I might win some. When I'm around those who are outside the law, I become as one outside the law that I might win some. In other words, he was willing to give up his freedoms 
for the sake of the gospel. In other words, liberty before the Lord is a wonderful thing. He's saying, listen, I understand that under grace, I no longer have to keep the law of God. Now, when he uses the word law of God, he's talking about the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible, the, the, the law of God. And he probably also, refer, he's, he's identifying with the Pharisaical folks who would have added a lot more law to that. But he's saying, listen, but under grace, I'm no longer saved by keeping the law. Therefore, I'm free from keeping the law to maintain my righteousness. And yet, when and I am around those who are living under the law. I live under the law, not because I have to, but because I want to have an opportunity to share the gospel and save some who were under the law. When, you use your, when your liberty keeps you from making known the, the grace of God to others, your liberty isn't worth it. Paul was willing to surrender his freedom in grace for the opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, and so I'm going to describe it, and for some of you, you may, you may understand this, but sometimes you'll find somebody who maybe grew up in the context of a church where they, they felt maybe they couldn't do a lot of things. And so um, they begin to understand grace. They begin to understand that they're saved by grace, and they want to express that freedom. And so they begin to very openly, publicly do some things that maybe they weren't allowed to do in their home growing up, or maybe they weren't allowed to do in the context of the church they were growing up. And that becomes their defining thing. So I know some Christians who will say, I'm a Christian, and, and, but, but, they, but they publicly drink alcohol, and it's almost a way of saying, I'm under grace, under the law, I can drink whatever I want to. And other activities that you might, Christians all the time skipping church will say, listen, I'm under grace, under the law, I can skip church and still worship the Lord, and they almost flaunt that. And we can have an argument all day long about what it means to live under grace and not under the law. But you know what Paul says? He says that freedom's not worth it if it restricts you from sharing the gospel with another person. For him, the gospel was more important than his freedom under grace. And he says, if I have to give up my liberties, if I have to give up my freedom so that I can share the gospel with one who's still living under the law, then by God, I will give up my freedom. I will give up my liberty so that I might win some who are under the law. He's willing to give up his liberty. And by the way, he's willing to give up his cultural identity. So in verse 20, he says, I live under the law with people under the law. But I think for Paul, the more difficult thing probably was verse 21, where he says, I live as one who's not under the law for those who are not under the law. Now, now that, the way Paul writes sentences, it gets a little convoluted. But let me tell you what he's saying. He says, listen, I'm, he's a Jew. Remember, he grew up as a Jew. He grew up as a Pharisee. He's kept all the laws that, he's at, that, that, all the laws that was required from childhood. But he says, listen, when I need, if I need to hang out with some Gentiles to share the gospel of Gentiles, I'll live as one who's not under the law, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win some of them. Now, as I was thinking through this passage, I was thinking, you know, we can all say that how we were raised doesn't affect us, but that's a bold-faced lie. Somebody say amen. However you were raised has a, a, a heavy, heavy weight upon who you are. And th there may be some things that, that were a part of your childhood growing up that maybe you don't, even, you don't even ascribe to anymore, but they still have influence on your life just because they're part of your formative years. And I have to imagine that when, because of who Paul was and, 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 and what he had spent his early days doing, that for the natural thing for him probably 
was to, to keep the law. Not even, even after he was saved, maybe not because, certainly not because he felt like he had to, but just because he felt like he, uh, just because of just sort of the cultural dynamic of where, uh, uh, who he was. And I don't know this, this has totally been Smith making up, but here's where I probably think it probably came down for Paul. So he would have spent his entire grown up years and into his early days of career not eating pork. Right? He would have kept the, the, the Jewish dietary law. Now, at this point in his life, he's under grace. He's not under the law. And so theologically, he understands he can eat pork free before the Lord. It's not sin. He talks about eating things, that, that being free to eat things. But I suspect every time he sat down and somebody brought out a big old slab of bacon, there was probably something in him to go, my mama wouldn't want me to eat this. You know, I, I suspect there's probably something in him that goes, you know, if I was choosing what to eat, probably wouldn't choose bacon. But what does he say? If I'm hanging out with those who are not under the law, I live as those who are not under the law, that I might win some. In other words, he was willing to surrender his cultural identity. One of the most important things for any group of believers is to distinguish between the commands of God and the cultural norms. These often are conflated in our lives. And as a result, oftentimes when, 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 the, when the, the, the church in every generation has struggled with elevating cultural norms to, to the level of biblical commands. And so what we'll, we'll say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what we end up saying is to follow Jesus looks like looking like us and talking like us and acting like us. I suspect that even though Paul knew that he was free from the dietary restrictions of the law, I suspect every time he sat down to eat some chitlins or some, some, uh, some ham or some, some bacon, it was, it was a, a, an issue for him to think through and, and pray through. And yet for the sake of the gospel, he was willing to surrender his cultural expectations that he might win the loss. You know, the reality is, friends, we, we hold our cultural identity as a pretty big deal. And what Paul is saying is the more you know of the gospel, the less those things matter. The more you know of Jesus, the less those things matter. Surrender yourself. Surrender yourself in your liberties. Surrender yourself in your cultural identities. And lastly, surrender your rights. Look in verse 22 with me. The, second, the, the first part there of 22. He says, for those, uh, excuse me, verse 22. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak, had become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I, I, I use the word rights here um, in, the, in the sense of the maturity of faith. So in chapter 8, he spoke of those who were weak in their understanding of food sacrifices. And so he says, for someone sees you who have uh, a knowledge, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, for someone who sees you who have knowledge dining as an, in an idol's temple, will not, his, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat something sacrificed to idols? For, though your, for uh, through your knowledge, he, is, he who is weak is ruined, the brother, whose sake, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Now, if there was anybody mature in their faith, it certainly was Paul, particularly speaking to the, uh, to the Corinthian church. 
He had an understanding of the gospel. He had an understanding of the false uh, and powerless nature of idols. He had, a, uh, he, he had an, uh, an enjoyment of, of liberty and grace. He had an understanding of what it meant to be free under the law. But even in this, he was willing to restrict himself to accommodate the weakness and understanding and knowledge of others for the sake of the gospel. His ability to understand God's truth was a blessing, but he was quick to surrender that blessing that flowed from his his strong faith for the sake of the gospel of others. He was willing to surrender his rights. Friends, we live right now in a culture that has elevated personal autonomy to, I think, a dysfunctional level, and one of the byproducts of that is we are always screaming about, it's my right. It's my right to do this. It's my right to say that. It's my right to believe this and do that. And, and dear friends, I just want to say to you, it may be your right, but that doesn't make it right. It may be your prerogative. It may be legal. But what Paul is saying is those are not questions that Christians ask. Christians don't say, well, if it's my right, I must exercise it. If it's legal for me, I must be able to do it. Christians say, no, the most important thing to me is not my rights. It's not my legalities. It's the gospel of Jesus. And so if it means surrendering, releasing what is rightfully my thing to do for the sake of those who haven't heard the gospel, then praise God, let loose of my rights that the lost might be saved. And all of those things, freedoms and and cultural identity and rights. Put all of those things under this one thing. When you come to know Jesus, the first thing you must sacrifice is you. It is a sacrifice of yourself for the sake of Jesus. Now, Paul then moves his attention to why he's doing this. And and if you'll look with me in the passage, he says in verse verse 23, "I I do it all, for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. Now, just a few things here that we sacrifice yourself and you sacrifice for the lost. Your sacrifice, first and foremost, for the lost must be gospel-focused. I would just ask you this morning, what is the driving force of your life? What defines you? Paul says in verse 23 that that what drives him and defines him is the gospel. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I don't think that's something that is restricted for Paul only. In fact, one of the the most dangerous things I think we can do when we read a passage like this and go, well, that's appropriate for Paul. God used him greatly, wrote most of the New Testament well, certainly Paul should do all things for the gospel, but that doesn't apply to me. Friends, I think that is doing great damage to the testimony of Scripture. I don't think Paul is saying that as some super Christian. I think he's saying that as a witness, as a testimony to us, that you and I ought to do all things for the gospel of Christ. Now, in order for you to do all things for the gospel of Christ requires that you know the gospel of Christ, but I believe that once you know the gospel of Christ, then the other is is, is self-evident. Then you will do all things for the gospel of Christ. This is not something restricted to pastors or missionaries. Whatever you do, whoever you are, your life should be and must be gospel-centered. 
Be gospel-centered in your family, in your, at your work, at school, with your friends, when you're at play, when you're just in the community, when you meet strangers, that everything about you, your work, your school, your play, your family, your everything is gospel-focused. It is who you are. The idea here is that the gospel is not something you give special attention to at a specific time and place. The idea here is that wherever you all go and whatever you do, the gospel is the motivating characteristic of your life. Now, I, I don't have time to push too deeply in this, but I, I want to say this. If for you the gospel is a nice idea that you're willing to think about in certain places and in certain times, but it's not so saturated your life that it permeates everything about you, I'm not sure you've come to know the true gospel of Jesus. Because if you've come to know the gospel of Jesus that saves the vilest of sinners, that restores the wayward, that heals the broken, and gives hope for eternity, that permeates down to the most nth degree of who you are. And it doesn't matter where you are or who you're with, it becomes the driving force about your life. Be gospel-focused. Secondly, be biblically founded. Now, Paul, I think, is motivated here by the peril of sin and God's judgment. So notice what he says. I became a Jew to the Jew. I became those as, as, uh, outside the law to those who are outside of the law. I became weak. And notice in all of those things he said that I might save some. Save some. What is he saving from? To save means to deliver from a direct threat, to bring safe and sound out of a difficult situation. What is Paul saving from? Paul understood that outside of the grace of God, all men and all women remain under the wrath of God and destined for judgment. We spoke about this a few weeks ago when I preached on the reality of hell. I shared with you, dear friends, that for me, I had a friend of mine several weeks ago who I had shared the gospel with on many occasions die suddenly and step from this life into the next, does not know Jesus, and I'm fairly confident today he's spending eternity under the wrath of God. And you don't think that's not heavy on me? We all in this room have a natural desire to save people who are in danger. If there was a fire in this building right now, we would all naturally, if you knew about it and nobody else did, nobody would have to teach you. The youngest child among us to the, to the oldest among us knows what to do. You make it known. You pull the fire alarm. You tell everybody, you got to get out. There's danger here. Save yourself. Dear friends, if you understand the gospel and that there is, there is eternal condemnation under the wrath of God and there is hope in Jesus how does that not compel everything about you to do all that you can that some might be saved? The greater the danger, the greater the urgency. And Paul recognized the urgency and the great danger, and he focused his life to do whatever it takes to save as many as possible. 
He's motivated by the urgency of the disaster of hell, and he's motivated by the great hope of salvation. Oh, dear friends, there is great danger in the wrath of God, and there is great hope in the salvation of Jesus. Paul recognized that he knew the way to salvation, and the knowledge of salvation focused his life's passion to draw as many as possible to the saving grace of Jesus. And I think connected to that, he was motivated by the moment, by the urgency of the moment. When danger is close, the closer the danger, the greater the sense of urgency. I read an article, it's been years ago, and it was, the article was talking about that a particular group had made this very dire um, um, pronouncement that the world was going to end in like 10 years. But then they went about their life like normal. And, and the article was saying they must not be too concerned about it, right? Because there, there was not, a, there was not a, a relational sense of urgency compared to the disaster they proclaimed. You know, if I walked through here and I said, uh, you know, there's some smoke in the back, a little fire, don't you worry about it. Most of you would probably think it must not be too bad. It must be handled. Maybe a little cooking fire in the, in the, in, in, in the kitchen and if I said, listen, you just, you guys, don't worry about it. Stay where you are. We got this covered. You would, you would rightly assume, well, whatever he's talking about must not be urgent, must not be in an imminent danger. But if I come in running and I start screaming and yelling, interrupt the service and say, you got to leave, you got to leave right now. Don't ask any questions. Just get up, and leave your stuff. Then that urgency of the moment would, you would rightly understand there must be real danger Dear friends, this is not a scare tactic. This is true. Time is running out. Paul felt the urgency. Here are the things of our urgency. One is physical. Physically, I do not know the number of your days. Don't know the number of my days. We all walk around here thinking we've got tomorrow. And yet the fact of the matter is, three years ago, I could have said this as an illustration today. I said this is a reality. There could be a pandemic that would come. And take out friends and family that you thought had many years left. There may be a Mack truck with your name on it. It'll run you over and you never saw it coming. There's an urgency just of the physical. We've all had friends that have died suddenly from aneurysms and they had plans for the next day. I don't know the number of your days. There's a sense of urgency that all we have is this moment. So we do all that we can for this moment. But then there's also the reality of no one knows when the Lord's going to come back. The only thing we know about the return of the Lord is it's going to catch everyone by surprise. The old joke is when somebody tells you that they know the date and time Jesus is coming back, you're pretty safe that's not it because the Bible says no one knows the time or date when Jesus is coming back. We know this, that we're going to be doing normal stuff. 
regular things, working through our schedules and our, and, our, and our regular day activities because when Jesus comes back, it's going to catch the church by surprise. It's going to catch the world by surprise. And all we can say is, dear friends, it is coming. I don't know if it's five minutes from now. I don't know if it's five years from now. I don't know if it's 5,000 years from now. But I know this, all you have and all I can promise is this moment So Paul feels that urgency. He goes, whatever I've got to do, whatever I've got to do, living under the law, not living under the law, being weak, or whatever it requires of me, is worthy doing it that I might save some. We must be motivated by the urgency of the need for the lost to be saved. If you've been in Southern Baptist life long, then whether you know what it is or not, you have heard the name Lottie Moon. You may not even know who she is, but she was a real person. She was a missionary to to China. Uh, She lived in the the late 1800s, early 1900s, and because of that time difference, there's there's a tendency to sort of write her off as she lived in a different era. But I want you to hear me very carefully. I think when, if you understood the life of Lottie Moon, you'll identify with her. She grew up in a, in a family that, that was rather prominent. She had some, uh, some expectations. She was, must have been a very smart woman and, and achieved some education that was unusual for her day, and particularly being a, a lady in her day. She had hopes of being married. In fact, um, she at one point, we believe, had a, uh, an engagement with a very prominent Southern Baptist theologian an up-and-coming star in one of the seminaries. But at a very young age, so that, that uh, late teenage years, planning a, a marriage and planning a life, um, she heard a gospel presentation by a preacher in her church that gave an appeal for missionaries. And Lottie felt like God was calling her to give her life to missions. And so she did. We don't know the details. In fact, she and the man that she was engaged to be married did not write very much about it. There's a, there's, there is, in, in, in Baptist history world, there's a lot written because the, the man that she was engaged to be married to eventually abandoned the faith and became a universalist. And we don't know if she broke off the marriage because he was unfaithful to the gospel or if because he would not go with her on the mission field. But whatever the reason was, she abandoned marriage. And she would spend the rest of her life never marrying, ministering to the Chinese in China as an IMB missionary. Now, that is impressive enough with her life spent that way. That's a pretty big sacrifice. But her story is even all the more impressive. She died in 1912, and most people say she probably died of starvation. But it wasn't because she didn't have money, and it wasn't because she didn't have food. There were two things that were happening at that time. The, the, the International Mission Board at the time was, was strapped for money, and they were greatly indebted. And so for years, Lottie had been taking her meager salary that she had received for being a missionary, and she had given tremendous sums back to the, IMB mission, to the International Mission Board to support the missions that were trying to support missionaries like her. She was given her own money for the mission effort. 
But in the early 1900s, China was under great was under a revolution, and as a result of that, uh, there was um, a collapse in the in in in, uh, in the industry, and people were starving to death on the streets. And Lottie was giving her own money for food, and when that when she couldn't when when that ran out, she was using what meager food she had, and she was giving it to the people around her. She was literally starving to death because the people around her were starving, and so. She gave what she had. She died. She was a, a very petite woman anyway, but when she died, she was, she was underweight. She was sick. Um, she was almost penniless. And you have to ask the question, what would motivate somebody to do that? I don't know about you, but I like to eat. I like to eat every day. Amen. If Lottie had kept the money that was given to her as her salary, that's not immoral. That would have been right. She could have saved that up and retired and come back to the States and enjoyed a life that would have been provided for by what she had earned on the mission field. When things turned violent and dangerous in China, she could have gotten on a boat and come home and, and stayed safe and would have been taken good care of. She would have been celebrated even then amongst Southern Baptists, and it would not have been immoral, it would not have been wrong for her to pursue her own personal safety and come home. As, as things turned from bad to worse there in China, if Lottie had eaten the food that was provided for her, that would not have been immoral, that would have been appropriate and fine, and um, it would, there, was, there was no problem with that at all. And yet she chose to remain in a dangerous situation. She, changed, she chose to literally give her whole life, she chose to give her very food and her money, and her last breath to, to China. And the question is why? And the answer to that is so that she might win some. See, in Lottie Moon's life, I think what had happened was she came to understand the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And when she came to know the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, everything else inside of heaven just lost its value. Marriage is important and good and a blessing of God. She's willing to give that up for the sake of winning some for Jesus. A life in the comfort of her own country was good, worthy of celebration. She was willing to give that up for the value of winning some for Jesus. Money, nothing wrong with money, or saving it, or retiring on it. She was willing to give that up for the sake of winning some for Jesus. Food, God provides for all of our needs. She was willing to even give that up for the sake of winning some for Jesus. Now here's where we sit today. We sit in the comfort of wealth that no previous generation has really known. We're enjoying that wealth like no previous generation has ever known. And it's good. I'm thankful for it. But what I do think we are struggling with if we, we have raised our personal autonomy over the value of the gospel. Dear friend, behold the value of knowing Jesus. Look squarely at the consequence of not knowing Jesus. And purpose in your heart today that your first sacrifice would be your very self that you would sacrifice all that God has given you for the sake of the lost, that you might win some. That is the outcome of a life 
who's known the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.